Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the 4 Press Podcast presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusek, and in this episode, my guest is Ryan Holiday. No, Ryan is not an up-and-coming PGA Tour player or a Corn Ferry Tour player, but he is a New York Times bestselling author of books like The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, and Stillness is the Key. And he has a new book out today called Lives of the Stoics, The Art of Living from Zeno to Marcus Aurelius that you can get on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or pretty much everywhere where books are sold. Yes, this is a golf podcast, and yes, Ryan is a philosopher, but back in March, I had a chance to talk with Roy McElroy, and he told me that he had read several of Holiday's books, and that they had a huge, profound effect on him. I filed that little tidbit away, and then I read The Obstacle is the Way, and then I completely understood where McElroy was coming from and saw how a professional golfer could get a lot out of a book like that. Then I talked with Patrick Cantlay in July, and he told me that he had also read um, obstacle is the way during the COVID-19 break that he had from the PGA Tour. And then I had an opportunity to read Stillness is the Key. And after I finished that, I went about trying to get a message to Ryan so that I could ask him to actually come on the podcast. I thought he would be a great guest. I found his email address, out of the blue, emailed him. And like a day later, he answered saying, yeah, I'd love to come on. So very cool stuff. In the podcast you're about to hear, Ryan explains what stoicism is, and he talks about how it can benefit a person in their daily life, as well as in athletic competitions. And even for a non-golfer, gives you a few tips and some simple things that you can do to enjoy yourself a little bit more on the course and play a little bit better. So enjoy. Get stronger, hit longer, and end pain with Golf Forever. Created by Justin Leonard and co-author of the Younger Next Year Back Book, Dr. Jeremy James, Golf Forever is the take-anywhere online golf fitness program that helps you build a body primed for golf. It's simple, safe, and it works. At home, in the gym, on the golf course, Golf Forever's easy-to-follow exercises, warm-up routines, and course management videos will help you play your best pain-free. Sign up today at GolfForever.com and use promo code GOLFWEEK for a free 14-day trial. So I bet that uh, my professors back at my beloved St. Lawrence University, way back in the late 90s, when when I was leaving tiny Canton, New York, probably never envisioned that David Dusek was number one going to be having a podcast, because who the hell knew back then what the hell a podcast was? Um, we didn't have internet, kids, back in the day, but there you go. So, But, but a philosophy minor, uh, Grant Cornwall, uh, Baylor Johnson, Alan Kremel, all the folks back up there would have shaken their heads and said, there goes another one. Having a philosopher come on to a golf podcast is not something that I had envisioned. But in speaking with a number of players on the PGA Tour and in doing some reading, which is I, I don't get oftentimes enough time to do, but we all had quite a bit of time uh, over the last several months, it's become very clear to me that my next guest is somebody that I, I'm should have had on long ago. Um, Ryan Holiday is the New York Times bestselling author of The Obstacle is the Way, Stillness is the Key. Uh, also, Ego is the Enemy. And you can follow him at Ryan Holiday 
on most social media channels, as well as uh, going to the app, the Daily Stoic, excuse me, Daily Stoic, don't throw the the in there. Um, very happy to also announce that he has a new book coming out, which you can get now at probably Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all the uh, usual suspects called Lives of the Stoics. Um, so Ryan Holiday, welcome to the Forward Press. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, let's go right to the top and, and not bury the lead. Do you even play golf? I grew up playing golf. It's been uh, it's been a few years since I've since I've been out there, uh, but but I know the game pretty well. Okay, um, golfers have gotten to know you pretty well. It seems over the last couple of years, and I want to get to that in just a second. But for those of you who who may not have read some of his books, um, the main area of philosophy that you concentrate on and you write about is stoicism. Can you explain yes. to people what? In, in broad terms, what is Stoicism and what are the, ma the major tenets and, uh, and ideas that you're talking about? So we could sort of do the nerdy answer and I could walk you through ancient Greece and Rome <laughs> and, and, and we could talk about the sort of the tenets of the philosophy and all the unpronounceable names. What I try to do in my work is take this sort of uh, classical wisdom and apply it to modern life. And, and I think of all the schools, Stoicism is probably the most accessible and the most practical I mean, the, uh, basically, the, the core tenet of Stoicism is we don't control what happens, but we control how we respond. Mm -hmm. And so Stoicism is kind of a framework, a philosophy for that response that, that ended up being popular with Roman emperors and generals and, and, and artists and all sorts of people sort of outdoing things in the real world. So on the one hand, it's a little weird, you know, obviously to, to hear that, you know, professional golfers are thinking about stoicism but it but on the other hand it makes complete sense because it was always a philosophy designed for sort of high stakes high pressure you know uh stressful situations it just just uh you know in ancient rome that might have been on the floor of the Colosseum or in the olympic games and you know today it's it's on a golf course or it's, uh, you know, on, on, on the battlefield or something like that. Yeah. And, it, and it's been fascinating to me to go back as I've been reading your books and really enjoying them. And, and again, I, I can't you know emphasize enough. It's, it's something that people are sitting here, if they, they're still on in the philosophy on golf, the, the reading of all of your books is very easy. It's in very digestible chunks. I think in many times you can skip around. And, and I did in reading Lives of the Stoics, I did freely just jump from chapter to chapter and idea to idea. Um, I think it's, it's a very easy way for people to jump into a lot of this stuff. And I think for a lot of people who might not read this type of content, it just makes it simpler. Uh, I think it's easier. The books are very, very approachable. Um, they're physically small books. Before we sort of get into this, this is an odd thing. Was that a conscious decision that something that your publisher came to you with that you presented with? They're, they're very compact. Yeah, I, I had this idea that I wanted it to be a book you could finish on a, on a short airplane flight or, uh -huh. or, you know, you could throw it in a backpack or a golf bag or whatever. Uh, I, I did I did remember growing up the sort of smaller books that, you know, they've actually often been popular with golfers, whether it's Don't Sweat the Small Stuff or, you know, the little sort of books of collected stories or, or anecdotes or whatever. Uh, so there was it was partly that and then partly just, uh, you know, the, the first book came out and, and clearly it touched something. And so obviously when I work on the sequels, we, we sort of kept what was working. It, uh, it's definitely working. So I've read that Chris Bosch, NBA star, is a huge fan, has read multiple times Obstacles Away. 
The New England Patriots read the book as a team. It was also given out to the Seattle Seahawks. So that's good for uh, for helping to, to pay off the mortgage when, when you know guys are buying at 50 and 100 of them a clip. It was also really interesting to see that you were on Golf Channel fairly recently doing a segment about Rory McIlroy. And Rory has been pretty open about how he is trying to improve himself, not just as a golfer, but also as a person. And, and that I really think he does not see himself simply as a golfer. He has just become, with along with his wife Erica, a father for the first time. And he has really dove into a lot of the stuff that you have written and, and some other people as well. Um, you've said that you've met a lot of athletes and famous people. I know on, on other podcasts that I've listened to, have you met with any golfers and Rory or any, any of these guys, or is this still something that's coming at you at, at tangentially? Yeah, I've, I've, I've met it. I've met a few over the years. I, I've, I've never actually met Rory. We, we've, uh, we've talked a few times, which has been cool. Um, obviously a global pandemic makes, uh, that puts know, a crimp uh, on the travel schedule. Yeah. Yeah, it, it certainly does. But, but it's actually been great, you know, as, as a writer, this is sort of more what you should be doing, which is staying home and not going around, uh, you know, meeting people. But yeah, I, I, I've, I've been lucky enough to meet athletes in, in all different sports. And the weirdest thing for me is just been how similar they all are. So whether you're meeting, uh, you know, a professional golfer or an NFL coach or you're meeting, you know, members of the special forces, what I've, what I've really tended to find is that elite performance is elite performance. And that not only, like, obviously, uh, it's been flattering to hear that they're, they're reading my books, but they're really all reading the same books and they're quoting the same yeah. ideas. They're eating, like, you know, they're all kind of eating the same diets or experimenting with the same things. They're listening to the same podcast. They, you know, they, they, they're, they're fans of the same, like, they're, they're all doing the same thing, which is trying to get to that next level. And, and the weird part, too, is that um, it tends to be a, a lot more focused than you would think on the mental and spiritual side of things. Um, and, and maybe that's because they, they've already spent the first, you know, however many decades of their career and life focused on the physical element of yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Or that's kind of already handled for them organizationally, like particularly in team sports. It's like you have a strength coach and you have practice and you have all these other things. And so so if someone's looking for an extra edge where they end up going to is is usually the knowledge side of things. So I have found it to be true in golf. And, and I was a collegiate tennis player and started writing about tennis and following it. And I've spoken with with a bunch of the, those guys and, and those women before and have been told on numerous occasions the difference between the top tennis player in the world or the top golfer in the world. And the number 100 is very, very small, infinitesimally small, such that most fans and people who are watching this match on TV wouldn't be able to tell the difference. If you took the, if you took Roger Federer's fame away and you put him out on a practice court and you took the guy who was number 100 in the world and put him out there, you really wouldn't see that much of a difference. And so it makes total sense when you say, they're looking at nutrition. They're looking at mental strength. They're looking at different types of rest and recovery, which is now sort of the new strength training is the recovery sure. training and all those kind of things. It makes 100% sense to me that the topics that you're writing about, if they can glean any little nugget that they think gives them a competitive edge over somebody who hits a forehand or putts just as well as they do, that's a huge deal. No, I think that's right. And, and the other element that we don't talk enough about is, is like it, it requires a certain amount of talent and drive and skill to make it into the league, to make it onto the tour, sure. 
to get drafted, whatever. And, and maybe that even that energy and that, that ambition sustains you for the first years of your career. But then almost immediately, your body begins to quit on you. And, you're, and, and, and not only that, but whatever advantages you had and, and you know, unique uh, you know, proposition you brought to the court or the, the, the course, now other people have figured it out. And so, so it, it evens out really quickly. So, so really what the greats tend to do is manage to sustain greatness over an extended period of time. And so I think that's the other part. So, you know, they're like, okay, I've gotten, I, I know what routes I'm supposed to run. I know, you know, I've perfected my swing. I've done all these things. Okay, well, now what I need to work on is, for instance, keeping my ego at bay so I don't yeah. grow complacent. Or I need to, you know, I, I've now, I'm now recovering from an injury. How do I do that? Or I'm now wrestling with what it's like to be famous and have all these temptations or, you know, all these other things come into play. And that's where the, the ability to sustain and to maintain excellence becomes the, the sort of the next and the most essential battle. So in Obstacle is the Way, um, one of the things that I took away from that is that people who achieve truly great things oftentimes see the process as being the most fulfilling thing rather than the, the carrot at the end of the stick. They, they, they learn to relish the fight, relish the, the struggle, if you will, almost as much, if not more than whatever it is, the, the end game that they achieve. Is How much of that do you think becomes a nature versus nurture type of proposition? It feels like some people are born, for, for in my parlance, as grinders. They're willing to grind out. They just, by their own nature, have, it seems like, a boundless ability to keep fighting, whereas other people it would seem that has to be a learned skill like anything else. Yeah, well, look, I think if you are primarily motivated by the external rewards, the, the, the game is against you. Not only because it's inevitable you're going to lose a whole bunch more times than you're going to win, especially on the way up. Yep. But um, what happens when you do win, right? If it, Let's yeah. say you do make it to the top. If your motivation was, was, was that, well, now all of a sudden you either retire or you lose the thing that was propelling you. So, you know, you look at someone like Tiger Woods, he basically spends, what is that, almost 10 years in the sort of the wilderness as yeah. a golfer. Yeah. You, and, and what's interesting about Tiger is, is when you read about him is that he talks about how early on he, he was like, I play for the hardware. He's like, I play to win. And, and all I really care about is the trophies. Yeah. Well, there's no way if, if that had continued to be his motivating force that he could have endured all those years of of struggle and pain. And, and so you have to you have to learn how to you have to learn how to become a grinder. And, and this is this is true in in writing, too. I mean, when the obstacle is the way it came out, it, it did well. You know, it, it, it sold well. It, it, it you know, people responded to it. Well, there was certainly validation. But it didn't hit the bestseller list for the first time until five years after yeah. it came out. And so, you know, I would have quit if that was the the thing that yeah. I wanted. Right. And and but, I, you know, what I ended up doing is I published three or four other books in between that period, because what was motivating me was primarily the love of writing and producing books. So you. In writing, you have to you end up learning that publishing is not the goal. 
it's it's writing that is the goal and publishing is the accidental byproduct yeah. of that goal. I love that uh, I heard you on a different podcast once say that, that you found out that you that had become a, a New York Times bestseller while you were mowing your lawn. Um, <laughs> and your your reaction was, okay, that's nice. But, but it's one of those things, as you sort of said, it's like, it's the byproduct. It's the end result. But it wasn't the reason why you did it in the first place. And I think and you, and when you mentioned Tiger and you write about him, quite a bit in stillness, um, that it's a really complicated thing going on inside his head. And and the external factors, the the way that his father helped to introduce him to the games and, and the way that he worked on the mental side of Tiger. And for people who listen to this podcast and know about golf, they, they understand some of the backstory. The Earl Woods was an extremely driven former Green Beret, not only wanted Tiger to be able to hit the ball a long way and play a certain way, but from a mental standpoint, to be much harder and much more focused, much more cold-blooded, uh, if you yeah. will, than just about anybody out there. And he pl- he played with the kid's mind. And kid, but I mean, like, this is at, like, age 7, 8, 10. Yeah. Um, he played with his mind. And in long term, as you write about, like, that has real repercussions. Well, yeah. And look, to, to go back to this idea of winning, it, it you know, when you win in professional sports – they do throw you a parade and you, they yeah. do give you, they do give you money. And so, so let's say, let's say in some universe, that is the way to greatness. You have to be externally motivated by these rewards. That's great. But what about the, what about someone who just loves the game of golf that's mm-hmm. trying to get better at golf? You know, you aren't, when you, when you finally break through that handicap plateau that you were looking at, or you finally get that thing you always wanted, or, you know, you finally break the mile time that you've been trying to do, or you run your first marathon, what you find is that nobody cares, right? Yeah. Like, you, you know, and that, that it's deeply anticlimactic. And so you, you have to be able to cultivate a set of intrinsic motivations uh, because, because the external thing is ultimately never as rewarding as you think. And I think one of the things that, that Earl Woods did to Tiger Woods, and, and I think if, if we were looking at it in any other context, we'd probably call it abuse, is he, he strips him... He, he makes him like a machine that's profoundly good at the game, mm-hmm. but almost utterly unequipped for anything outside the game. And it, it's a it's so specialized and it's so in singularly focused on one thing that it that it's ultimately incredibly fragile. And so there, there's not a lot. There wasn't a lot of resilient. There was resiliency in that in that model on the on the golf course. You know, it could it could bounce back from being down or it could tune out crowd noise, but it, it was obviously unable to sustain any other element of adversity in that life. And eventually, you know, the sort of wheels come off. And so, you know, I think uh, what stoicism is, is at its core is is a philosophy of resilience. And, and we need to be resilient because life is inherently unpredictable and people yeah. are complicated. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, I, I reread. Obstacle is the way starting in April when it was clear we were going to be home for a while. And yeah. there are a couple of things that I, I think everybody sort of at some point or other consciously or unconsciously when when the United States and the rest of the world pretty much locks down in the middle of March. I had just been at a couple of PGA Tour events in Florida and was trying to observe on the flight down, for example, the first week in March to Orlando, how many people are wearing masks on my flight, which was something that never happened but before sure. this. And then coming back where people shaking hands when we were there, I talked to Rory for about 10 or 15 minutes and uh, about some things. I come back and it's clear that the world is changing. I mean, the NBA shuts down. 
the golf season is is stopped a, a week later, and you know life as we know it changes around. And I think that consciously or unconsciously, everybody is sort of like, okay, how are we going to play this? You there, for a while there, if you went on social media, it seemed like everybody was binge watching Netflix and drinking basically a case of wine a day, which having two kids and a wife and, and a job like that really wasn't going to be an option for me. I've, no. I've, I've worked from home for the last seven or eight years. Okay. I've got a setup and it works really well for me, but now everyone else is sort of coming into my world. I need to adapt to this, but there was also a, a very big movement and you saw try and go out and buy a bicycle. Yeah. Good luck. Those are sold right. out. Try and buy some free weights. Um, I happen to be really lucky and I bought a Peloton about a week before all hell broke loose. So I actually was, was able to do some of these things. And I think that, that I would love to know if the, there was a surge in sales, for example, and you may not know this, but I bet your publisher does. Was there a spike in sales in, in especially, I suppose, an obstacle, but also in, in stillness is the key because that was exactly what, at least for me, I needed was there are so many things right now that I have no control over whatsoever. I don't control you know, who is flying or not flying. I don't control whether there's a vaccine or there's a cure that's coming around. All I can do is focus on, am I doing the best thing to keep myself and my family safe? Are, are the lights still on at the house? Um, these are like, we're, we're really stripped to the most core and elemental things. And I would imagine you probably sold a bunch of books during all this. <laughs> yeah, sure. It, it's obviously cold comfort, you know, uh, to, 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 to watch the world basically implode and then go, you know, this is, this is going to be great for book great sales. For business. Especially as, as, as an author, you know, you, the, the, a good chunk of the, the, the career is flying around talking to people. So yeah. it sort of, uh, is, is, a you know, uh, just moving stuff around a little bit, but it, but it was surprising. Yeah. Uh, I think in, in April, um, the daily stoic popped back on the, the bestseller list and, and sort of hasn't been off the bestseller list since. I'm not surprised. And, and that's a, that's in a world where for the, the most part of the last six months, bookstores have been closed. Right. And so mm -hmm. I think what these moments offer us, and this is, I think it's sort of a core stoic idea is, is like, look, is this going to make you better or worse? That's the choice that you have. And, and you know, the, uh, Admiral Stockdale was a practitioner of the Stoics. He, this is be, started to become known as the Stockdale paradox. But he basically says that that on the one hand, you have to uh, you can't be delusional. You can't be you can't lie to yourself. Uh, you almost can't be an optimist. You have to unflinchingly accept the reality of your situation. On the other hand, you can't give up hope or faith that you'll manage to turn this into something. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what he ends up saying about his experience as a POW in Vietnam. He goes, look, I never, he says, I never gave up uh, hope that I controlled the end of the story. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how you want to think about it. So whether you're down, you know, whether you're playing the, 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 the first worst nine holes of golf of your life, do you hold out the ability to say, Hey, I can, I can salvage this on the back nine. You know, do, do you look at, you know, there's three months left to go in 2020 and you go, man, this has been the worst year of my life and write it off. Or do you say, hey, there's another quarter left here to play. Here's what I'm going to do with it. And that that's really how, not just what I write about, but like everyone else, I'm trying to sort of make sense of and apply in my own life. Yeah. I think that you're sort of hitting on perspective there and, and just sort of the whole concept of the event itself is neither good nor bad. Oftentimes it's, it's exactly how you sort of project something on it that, that if, if you 
are playing golf. Like, so, so I told you, like, I just, so I just got this Peloton and there's one particular instructor that I like to listen to, um, for her classes. And one of the things that she says constantly is like, instead of thinking about this, waking up in the morning and saying like, Oh, I have to go and, and ride this bike for 45 minutes. You get to ride this bike for 45 sure. minutes. There are a hell of a lot of people still with a ventilator in them who would gladly trade places with you right now for being able to walk down your hallway out of your bedroom get on a bike, do some exercise and have a reasonably productive day. Just triggering that in my own mind completely changes everything. And I think that you do a really good job in almost all of your books and really ramming home perspective for golfers. Like, okay. Um, I had an opportunity to play Wingfoot golf club, which is going to be hosting the U S open next week. Now I'm not going to be threatening Rory McIlroy any decade soon, as far as golf goes. But the very first shot on the first tee with a whole bunch of people watching, I blast the ball way out to the right. It's a terrible shot. Now, right off the bat, I can go, oh, shit. Okay, this is going to stink, and it's going to ruin the rest of my day. And I'm gonna, Or I can be like, hey, look, you know what? And How many people would trade places with me right now? How many people would love to have this really fun, glorious opportunity? Enjoy it. Have fun with it. And you talk, and if you can please explain a little bit more about the, the power and the really the importance is in what you're writing about when it comes to just perspective. Well, I gave a talk to a group of uh, athletic directors in the NCAA uh, recently. And, and uh, one of the things I did at the beginning of it, and I forget the exact stats is, is I sort of walked through what the worst moments in the history of college football have been. I mean, there was a moment in the, in the early 1900s where, uh, there'd been so many deaths on the football field due to head injuries that 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 college football was going to get banned as a sport. And actually, Theodore Roosevelt comes in and and basically creates the NCAA to 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 save football. And, and this is where helmets come from and all of that. Um, you know, in, in the Rose Bowl is canceled in uh, I think forty one and forty two because they were afraid it would be a, a target by the Japanese. There was a season, I think, 1943, where uh, no, there were not enough players or coaches to field teams in the SEC because they'd all enlisted in mm. the Army. And so, obviously, this is not great, right? And this is less than ideal in so many forms, but almost objectively better than it's been at some of the worst moments that people were more than able to survive and endure. So one of the things that the Stokes do is that you're always trying to sort of look at it from the perspective that gives you the ability, like Epictetus talks, he says, every situation has two handles and one of them will bear weight and the other one won't. And so you're kind of, you know, the, again, this is just a metaphor, but, you know, there's there's the handle that says, oh, this sucks. This is unfair. I can't do anything. And, and that's true. And then there's the perspective that is hopeful and cheerful and optimistic and and has has some some assert allows you to assert some agency over the situation, mm -hmm. and so yeah, it begins obviously with the perspective that you look at it, and then the next part is of course taking action based on this. It's not just hey, if you magically wish things to be good, they become good. I mean, this is dependent on what we do, but but yeah, I think the perspective that we have is often a self fulfilling prophecy. So if you tell yourself, you know, I've been screwed, it's over, I can't do anything. You know, you think about New England in that 28 to 3 Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. If they had told themselves the game was over, it would have been over. If they had told themselves, you know, just because they told themselves we have a chance, 
doesn't mean that they're going to win. Right. But if you don't believe you can do something, you're not going to be able to do anything. Yeah, I, I had a coach in college on my tennis team who who said every time she hears the word can't come out of a player's mouth, she hears in her own mind the word won't. So I can't make yes. a comeback. I can't run faster. I can't come out like you're, you're choosing not to because sure. you, you may not be able to achieve that. You may not be able to beat that guy from some other school. But if you go into your into into the mind of it, and we've heard this from Brooks Kepka on numerous occasions, who's won two U.S. Opens and two PGA Championships. And came out very openly and said, look, you know, I love it when the tournaments are really, really hard, like U.S. Open, because half of the field right away thinks they can't win. Well, now I only have to beat half the guys. They've taken themselves out. And this is something that Jack Nicklaus in his prime said on numerous occasions, that the harder the tournament, the more guys don't genuinely believe they can win. So I don't even pay attention to them. There's really only a handful of guys that I do pay attention to. Saying these things in a podcast, saying these things, reading them in a book is one thing. Can you give people who are listening to this a tip into actually putting it into practice? Because it's one thing I think to to sort of hear, okay, you're playing lousy today, you're you're not feeling well, things are going to, like that. You're changing or or looking at things from a different perspective can can change around your mindset and hopefully either make you enjoy some things more, achieve some things more. But I still have a feeling that for a lot of people, it's 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 easy to say, but it's much much harder to do. Yeah. So one of the things I talk about in the book is just just be a lot of this is very simple, but that doesn't mean that it's easy. easy yeah. And and so, you know, I think a lot of people want easy, straightforward formulas that give them everything they want. And that's not really how it works. You know, it starts with the perspective and then what action are you going to take? And then I think even here, what people want is this sort of bold, brilliant stroke that will magically solve all their problems. And And the reality is most of the time it's it's sort of putting one foot in front of the other. Zeno, one of the Stokes, he has this great line. He says, well-being is realized by small steps, but it is no small thing. And so I think when you, what, what, that's what I think about with a book. That's what I think about, you know, with a business. That's what I think about when, when I'm exhausted or, you know, I'm, I'm riding a Peloton. It's like, you know, how can I just get through the next few seconds, mm-hmm. right? If, and if you can stack these things on top of each other, that's how you get progress and and again let's go back to that that super bowl against the falcons you know the the patriots weren't like hey how do we score you know how do we score all these points on one drive you know what they said is hey we got to get a field goal then we got to score a touchdown then we got to convert that the two-point conversion then we got to score again you know that we got to get the game into uh, tied up so we can go into overtime and then in overtime we can do x and so you know, it's about, as Marcus really says, it's about assembling these things action by action, piece by piece. And really, no one can stop you from these incremental tiny steps. If you have this bold, complicated plan, that can fall apart like this. But if, you're, if your aim is just to keep going and to not quit and to put one foot in front of the other, that's very difficult to stop. So it only took about 27 and a half minutes for us to get Marcus Aurelius and Zeno worked into a golf podcast. I friggin' love it. Um, that's what I do. That's what I do. Hey, that's the, you know, that's the thing. The other one, so I grew up in upstate New York, which has a very large Greek population. So thankfully, I can read a lot of these names. Um, another one, Fabius, which you have written yeah. about. I, I read, and I apologize for not remembering exactly when, but you talk about sort of the discipline to not attack. Um, Fabius, and I'm going to ask you to sort of tell this story because to me, this one relates directly to golf. I remember reading this and 
anytime that you turn on a, a broadcast of a golf tournament, you see the flag sitting there, you see this wonderful player, you know, John Rahm or Dustin Johnson or whoever it's going to be. And it seems like they're always hitting the ball really close to the hole. I mean, that's the object of the game is to put the ball in the hole. But there are many times when you see them very consciously going totally in another direction because the risk of being overly aggressive, of attacking, is not worth the, you know, it's just simply not worth it. The, the, the smarter play, the more disciplined play is to go away. You tell a story about Fabius, and if you could just sort of recount this, I think a lot of people will get something out of this. Yeah, Fabius was the Roman general who was tasked with with defending against the invasion of Hannibal. Uh, and and so Hannibal, you know, boldly crosses the Alps. No one thought he could do it. Rome is thrown into a panic. And, and they, you know, they want a general to sort of go out and engage and defeat the invader. And, and what Fabius has the brilliance to see is that, oh, man, this guy is really far from home. He got over the Alps, mm -hmm. but now to, to, to retreat, he's got to go back over the Alps. He can't get supplies. You know, he's he's where we want him, even obviously, though, we don't want him here. And and what Fabius does is is essentially refuse to attack and and to 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 wait. He only engages in these kind of small little uh, the, these small little battles. He begins to wear Hannibal down and and and. What, what's so impressive or what's so interesting about this story is, is not that it, the strategy works because it is working, but that it's actually that the Romans hate it. Yeah. Fabius is considered a coward and, you know, Fabius is mocked. Fabius has to, you know, uh, leave for a minute and somebody rushes in to take over for a minute. And the first thing they do is attack. And 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 so Fabius ultimately is vindicated in this strategy, but but not without a whole lot of opposition, because. As you said, what you're supposed to do is get as close to the pin as possible, be as aggressive as possible. But what a Fabian strategy, and that's what we call a Fabian strategy, is contingent on conserving your resources, waiting. And, and oftentimes it's, uh, it's about letting your opponent destroy themselves. I think, you know, you're, you're watching this right now in the presidential election. Again, we can put aside who, who anyone supports. But a lot of people are upset that Biden isn't being more aggressive. Mm -hmm. And and it's very clear to me Biden is operating on a Fabian strategy. He's saying, you know, when someone is destroying themselves, the, the first rule is not to interrupt. Yeah. And, and, in, and that can be really hard in sports. If someone has a big lead, you know, you you've got to have a lot of confidence to go, hey, this is going to even itself out. I'm in this for the long haul. I'm not going to overreach and put myself out of contention by being by gambling now, I'm going to let the law of averages do its work before I make my move. It, it seems to me that that is pitting a, a lot of discipline um, on the part of the athlete, the politician, the general, whatever it's going to be, um, against their own ego in many cases. Yes. And that I have written that the most powerful thing, at least in our game in golf and in, in many others, is ego. It, it it seeps into almost everything that people do, the the shots they choose to hit, the clothes they wear, um, all, all these different decisions, how they they want to be seen by others um, is something that is, is a hugely powerful force. And can you talk a little bit about how it's it's really difficult, but but it's really important to keep your ego in check when when you're doing these things because there's all these different forces you may know that's the right thing to do but how many times do people go out on the golf course and like i'll oh, screw it like I i'm gonna go for it anyway like, well okay but understand the consequence of what you're doing if you listen 
to the rational mind, you'd probably choose a different course of action. Well, look, this self-discipline isn't just about being conservative. Like, mm -hmm. as an example in football, the, the odds show that, that coaches should go for it on fourth down much more often than they do. Mm -hmm. Well, what prevents them from, from doing it if the, if, if the stats show it's the rational move? It's they don't want to be criticized on the, on, on, at the post-game yeah. pro, uh, press conference. Yep. And they, they don't want to be on SportsCenter tomorrow as the guy that blew it. And so, you know, you think about that. Uh, again, I'm a big Saints fan. So you think about that, uh, that decision to, to, to go for an onside kicks in, in the Super Bowl by Sean Payton. The amount of – that doesn't take ego. Ego would be doing that for reckless reasons, right? Um, what, that, what that requires is, is a strong sense of confidence. Yeah. The ability to take a risk and know that if it doesn't work out, you're going to take a lot of heat for it. And yep. so it, like, I think people – People often confuse ego with confidence, and then they they also think that being conservative or self-disciplined is cowardice, and it's much more complicated than that. The Sneak is a true crime podcast from For the Win in USA Today, and this season is on a surfing champion whose life took a violent, tragic turn. Within 30 seconds, they're both dead. The Sneak Murders at Whiskey Creek is out July 29th, wherever you get podcasts. Yeah, and, and that's where the, a lot of what you're writing gets into the realm of psychology, being the son of a psychologist. I mean, like you can just see that like between having a father who's a psychologist and a mother who's a social worker. Yeah, I, your books are right up my alley. Like this oh, is right into the sweet spot of it. Um how do we, this is a very selfish question, how do we in the media, how, how should we be judging success or failure of athletes? Because one of the things that you write about and you've talked about on a number of occasions is, and we, and we touched upon it a little bit earlier in this podcast, about success not necessarily hinging on external things, but if, if that's not the case, that's why you know, like somebody wins the trophy or they don't. You know, and yeah. That's when we start, go into the media tent and we write about who won, and then we write other stories about people who did not win. But from what you're talking about and what your books really espouse is like it's a lot more complicated than that in almost everything besides, you know, the, the final athletic arena where we're hoisting up. How do we as media members sort of wrestle with that fairly? Well, I think there's two things that you want to look at there. So number one, uh, and this is something a, a, a basketball coach told me that, that he had sort of gotten from the books is he's like, I'm trying to get better at only criticizing my team for things that are in their control. Mm -hmm. So if a player takes a shot and it's the shot I wanted them to take, I can't get upset if it goes in or not, right? Because the ball leaves their hand. It was yep. what they're supposed to do. And a certain percentage of the time it goes in and a certain percentage of the time it doesn't go in. You can't, you can't criticize someone for what's not in their control. And, and conversely, you can't, you can't get too excited if they took the wrong shot when they shouldn't have taken it and it did go in. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, so I think we have to look at, uh, you know, is this something that's up to them? Is it not up to them? Mm -hmm. We also want to look at based on what they knew at the time or what they thought was happening. Was it the right call? Yes or no. Right. Not again, not does the external result, uh, determine everything. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that, that the media does bad poorly, that, that, that people do poorly is we often kind of make up stories in retrospect, a, a narrative, if you will, that often smooths out a lot of the wrinkles. Like, so for instance, you know, Tiger's, uh, you know, Tiger's uh, 
sort of comeback, so to speak, mm-hmm. where where you know he ends up winning this major and everyone freaks out. Um, and they, but but what we miss is that okay, so yes, there was this stuff in two thousand nine, but he didn't immediately fail at golf afterwards. He, right. he he won pretty like I think he won a major as late as like two thousand eleven, right? He he. Um, T- Tiger Woods has the the scandal breaks out in two thousand nine. The, the all the injuries take place, but people forget he won five times in two thousand thirteen. It was player of the year. He didn't win a major, but right. five wins in a season would be pretty much the peak of almost anybody else's performance. He's judged on a, on a totally different level. But yeah, you're right. It's it's not like after the scandal and after you know stepping away to try and right himself for a lot of things, the Tiger forgot how to hit an eight iron. No, he, he knew how to hit that shot. And so that's really dangerous too, right? Because some people, and I've heard people say this, they say things like, oh... Maybe all of the misbehavior and the addiction and the problems, maybe that was good for the golf game. You know, maybe that was, you know, maybe that's just what it takes. Right. We look at this with Michael Jordan. Well, for instance. Yeah. We, we, we look at Jordan and you go, oh, he was at times an asshole and he was great. Therefore, to be great, you must be an asshole. And that's that's actually, you know, like you look at the story uh, of him getting cut from his high school basketball team, which mm-hmm. he didn't actually get cut. But but, you know, is it that 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 so hurt him that it motivated him to come back? Or is it that he grew like seven inches between his sophomore and junior year? I've heard different athletes tell me uh, I interviewed Boris Becker one time and and I asked him about things and we were sort of dancing around the same topic. And and he said to me in, in almost a very off the cuff kind of kind of a manner, he said, you know, to be number one in the world in tennis, you have to be smart enough to understand the game, but stupid enough to think it's the only thing that really matters. Sure. And, and it's that that heightened level of selfishness that oftentimes the most elite athletes are allowed to have by the people, their, their inner circle. They don't have to think about going to the grocery store. They don't have to think about, to be honest with you, almost anything monetarily. When you reach a certain plateau, your, your lifestyle isn't going to change. If, you, if you've already got $50 million in the bank, winning another four, yeah, that's nice. But but there's nothing that, that you're going to do differently. It's not a house that you're going to get that you wouldn't have already gotten. But sure. yeah, that one always stuck with me. The other one, I love how you can quote Zeno and Seneca and all these other people. I've got like Boris Becker. I'm going to like, Steffi Graf told me to, the same thing. She, the only reason why I ever lose a match is I successfully execute the wrong game plan or I unsuccessfully execute the proper one. She's like, that's sure. all it is. It's either I'm, I either I know what to do and I just don't do it today, or I have no idea what to do to beat this other woman across the net, and therefore I'm executing the wrong game plan. And she's like, "That it's as simple as that." No, I, th- I think that's right. And I had Manu Ginobili on my podcast recently, and I am I'm fascinated with that idea that like what it takes to be great is is yeah. complete self absorption and and almost a cruel streak and a valuing winning above all else. Because although that 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 is often illustrated in the in the most famous, like the 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 Jordans or the Tigers mm-hmm. or the Lance Armstrongs or whatever it is. You know, it's often though just one or two. Like it, again, to your point about there being very little distinction. You know, uh, at the top. You know, Manu has has four rings, so more than ninety nine point nine percent of people who have ever you know, ever won the game. And there's no stories about him ripping people's throats out or, or, you know, humiliating anyone. And so, so it, you know, was Steve Jobs a great CEO and leader because he was a brilliant designer 
or is it that he was a cruel tyrant who didn't care about other people? I'd like to think it was actually his skill and his competence and his brilliance at making great things. Mm-hmm. And then that just excused the other stuff. But, but just, you know, causation and correlation are not the same thing. We like nice, tidy answers. And most of the time, as you write, like there isn't one clean, tidy answer that we can put a bow on. When more and more people are, are getting their news and reading it, you know, off of their phone, um, you know, two or three thumb flips and you've already lost their, their, their attention. Sure. It's, it's very difficult to, to, to do that. Um, journaling is one of the things that I look back on and maybe stumbled upon. So my father was, was digging around in his attic back at home and came to our house last year at Thanksgiving with this big box that had all kinds of very embarrassing photos that showed, well, let's say that my kids went through, saw their picture of their dad who is now shaves his head with a big orange afro. So they had good fun with seeing sure. David Dusek, age 16, 17, whatever. There was a three-ring binder in there that I had 100% forgotten I made before my senior year. Um, as I said before, I played tennis in college. I started a journal. And it was one of these things where I wrote down notes after every practice. I wrote down notes after every match. I had a game plan against my own teammates, the way that you sort of achieve a position. Tennis in college, there's the number one singles, the number two, number three, and usually goes down five singles players in order, and you're supposed to put your best guy at number one and so on, and then a couple doubles. I had breakdowns on how to beat every one of my my partners, my teammates, let alone the people that I, I was going to see. Yeah. Um, you espouse the idea of journaling quite a bit. Can you explain what what the process is and what is the benefit of journaling for people as, as relates to what we're talking about today. Well, it's, yeah, look, it's more than just the, the, the wonderful sort of memories that came back from you looking at having done this many, many years ago. And, and that, and that, that's a benefit not to be understated. But for me, the, the process of journaling is, is taking some time every day, you know, time that's quiet time. That's not, you know, also with the device time that has no real explicit purpose except to reflect, except to examine your own thoughts and and to kind of clear your mind. And so I think the process of sitting down and doing that is, especially if you have a high stakes or a high stress pr- pr- uh, profession, just a really important practice and a deeply philosophical one. I mean, Marcus Aurelius's meditations is in a sense, you know, the diary or the journal of the most powerful man in the world writing notes to himself about, you know, exactly what you were doing, which is, here's what I need to work on. Here's where I fell short. What about this? What about that? And, 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 you know, just sometimes what an incredible document that can turn out to be. It's uh, it was really neat. Do you, do you prefer people to do that paper and pencil or is that something electronic? At the end of the day, I think whatever works, you know, and, and so I don't want to deter people by saying, this is the way you have to do it, or, you know, this is the best way to do it. But I do think, you know, when you're writing in your journal, if it's a physical journal, not only are you more likely to sort of keep that over time, I think, because you can mm-hmm. throw it in a box somewhere or whatever, but, uh, you know, you're not going to get a phone call in the middle of it. You're not going to get text alerts in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. You're not going to decide to scroll over and check Instagram in the middle of it. I think having it, having it be a, a, an analog document provides some, uh, you know, just a, better opportunities for focus and concentration. Can you also then sort of define to people, because we've, we've talked about the word and you obviously wrote a whole book on it, about stillness. And in, in athletic terms, is stillness something of like what people may have heard of as being in the zone? 
I think it is. Yeah. When, when sometimes when people hear stillness, they think, you know, absence of activity. But when you talk to athletes, they tend to know immediately what you're talking about, which yeah. is that that time, you know, everything slows down. That's the, you know, that the, that's the ability of the team to come together in a two minute drill. You know, when the game is on the line and they're shooting a free throw, you know, that's that's the, the last three strokes on a, on a hole. It's uh, it's it's when it doesn't matter what's happening outside. Inside, you are at a complete place of peace and quiet and and uh, and stillness. Yeah. And it, as a writer, that's a place you have to get all the time, as you know. Yeah, it's it's something where some days you just struggle. You're you I, I literally will struggle like I can't type. Like I I will mistype. I'm hitting, you know, the delete button on, on my keyboard more than any other key. And some days my brain has trouble keeping up with my fingers. And it just mm-hmm. it just spits itself out onto there. And when that happens, just don't get in the way of it. You know, just just yes. let whatever it needs to happen come out naturally. Um yeah, it to me. It's the, the, the idea of, I, I really enjoyed stillness, to, which is basically looking at lots of different people. You have a whole, par- uh, a whole chapter in there about Tiger, and we've sort of talked about that, about his, while it may have looked like he had achieved and had a, a great sense of stillness on the outside, uh, as I think that you put it, it's, it's what's below the water that's, that's going to kill you. It's not what you see above the water. And that obviously was, was the problem for him as well. Um, for people who maybe are looking to do that again, is there is there something that you can tell people who will be listening to this to help them achieve that more often or, or come closer to that more often? Well, I think, look, I, I'm sure almost every golfer you've ever talked to is pretty damn severe about their routine. Yeah, you rituals. Know, they have their, huge. They, there's a reason, yeah, all athletes have have rituals. They have things that they do before a match, after a match. There's a thing they do before they approach, you know, before they approach the tee. You know, and they do this the same way because it's about slowing down. It's about tuning out. And ultimately, it's really about tuning in mm-hmm. to, to the, the task in front of them. You know, uh, and, and Rory's talked about this. Uh, um, Cal Newport's a, a great author and a mutual friend of ours that, uh, you know, you can't do that. You, you will not play well if you are driving from hole to hole, checking social media and your email, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's about getting into a place of concentration and, and sort of singular focus on the task at hand. Um, and, and, uh, you know, that's increasingly difficult in our sort of chaotic social media, 24 seven news world. Yeah. It's, um, it's something, again, I, I used to, when it, when I was playing, I would bounce a first serve, always had four ball bounces before the first serve, three ball bounces before the second. And if I, if I deviated from that, I couldn't even hold my racket. I would literally fall over. It, it was it would be so ingrained. So, folks, when you're hearing him talk about this, this is basically your pre-shot routine. This is your warm-up that goes the second time. Tiger Woods is famous. There was a really cool thing that I saw up on Instagram. I think the PGA Tour may have put it up that, that showed him going through and fast-forwarding um, every one of his pre-round warm-up shots. And it was metronomic. It was just boom, 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 the way that they had edited it and spliced it. But you saw that like it's the same folks before every single tournament round. It is two shots with this with this club. Then it goes three to here, four to here, four to here. And then he's just adding it on. And it's this very, very methodical approach. And if you watch players on TV, you'll see that Rory or Dustin Johnson or Justin Thomas will reach in, pull out the club. 
They'll probably let, you know do whatever they're going to do, but but they do it every single time. Basketball players will bounce the ball at a free throw line every single time, spin it, tug the jersey, whatever. But whatever they do, they do it every single time. And and the the importance of rituals to athletics to me is is a huge thing. Um, so what you're saying is the more that they can incorporate that, the less they can, you know, stop paying attention to the cart girl, put down the Bud Light, and uh, and yeah. sort of focus. No, I think people, we often dismiss these things as superstitions, but it's actually a practice. It's about getting in, getting to the right headspace that you have to do. Um, and they can be simple things. Like for me, I don't touch my phone when I wake up in the morning. Mm-hmm. I go for a walk at the same time every morning. Um, you know, like this morning we were going for a walk and it was like it was raining, but it was like the walk is more important than being dry because <laughs> if I don't do that, it ripples through the whole rest of the day. And, yep. and so it's about you know, just getting to that right place. And I think golf as a game is, is obviously a physical game, but everyone knows what a mental game golf totally. is. And so I think it's, it's in golf, it's in, uh, you know, the kickers in, in football, it's, uh, you know, there, there's, it's, it's uh, the, the, the pitchers in baseball. There's only a couple of the, the sports where you see such intensity around the, the, these rituals. And that's, that's primarily because it's such a mental game. Last thing, and then I want to let you go because you yeah. also talk, talk about there and it, the literally the waking up early in the day, which yes. is something that um, I started noticing. A lot of golfers, Tiger is a very early riser. It doesn't look like he sleeps very much, which is probably not the healthiest thing because sleep is really right. important, especially when you talk about that in Stones. I, I remember seeing this beautiful picture of Ricky Fowler and then his girlfriend or fiance, now wife paddleboarding at like literally as the sun is coming up in Florida. Now, I think I saw that picture in January when it's cold and raining and disgusting here in Connecticut. I'm like, Oh, that's just that, that I would love to start my day. But what I noticed sure. was what he had put up the photograph on social media, whether he took it or obviously he didn't take it. He was in the picture, you know, at like five 40 in the morning. And it's just something I've noticed. A lot of very, very successful people tend to be very early risers. Um, it's something that you have written about. Can you explain a little bit about the value of getting up early in the morning and getting your day started like that? Yeah, look, uh, there's few, there's fewer interruptions in the morning. That's like mm-hmm. probably the biggest one. It's quieter in the morning, but I also think you are fresher in the morning. So like if, if I woke up and then I did all the things in the course of my, that I had to do in the day, like, you know, I had to go to the grocery store and then I had to grab this and then I had to make this phone call and then I had to do this interview. If I did all those things first, first off, a good chunk of the time, I never actually get around to the writing because <laughs> things can, you know, balloon yeah. and whatever, but also it would have sapped my willpower that I'm trying to, to bring to bear on that problem. And it would sap the the energy and the concentration and the kind of the, the zest that you need to bring to that thing. And so, yeah, maintaining that freshness is really what it's about. And so I think waking up early, doing the important thing before the mind has had a chance to come up with excuses or, you know, indulge in distractions is just a really important part. And that's why, yeah, you hear about CEOs that get up at 430 in the morning to work out. Because they know if they wait until after work, it's not gonna they're happen. probably not going to have the opportunity and they're definitely not going to do it as well as they could fresh out of bed. My wife says the same thing constantly. She she is by nature an early riser and will get her exercise done by 7 a.m. She's like, I never wake up and regret that I exercise and got that out of the way before my day goes to hell. And and well, I think there's a lot to that. No, I think that's right. And then I, I also think starting the day with a win is a very yeah. underrated 
Yeah. Uh, you know, it's Make like, the bed. Uh, it's yeah. Golfing at three in the afternoon. Okay. Whatever. But if you, if you got an early round in and it went great and then you went into the office, you're bringing an element of, uh, you know, um, a momentum into the, uh, into the picture. Ryan, I said at the top, but where can people find out more about the stuff that you're reading and where can they follow you on social media? So I'm at Ryan Holiday, and then if people are interested in Stoicism, we do a, a an email, a free email every day uh, about Stoic philosophy at uh, dailystoic.com slash email. And once again, folks, the new book that's just out, Lives of the Stoic, cannot recommend it enough. Again, Obstacle is the Way, Stillness is the Key, Ego the Enemy, all, all these books, that's why he's got that gigantic cattle ranch down there out, outside of Austin living his best life. Ryan Holiday, thank you very much for coming on the Forward Press. I appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.